I like to think and have tried to describe kind of like almost like concentric circles when I think about, you know, kind of where I have the relation to things going on around me. The inner circle is the things that I can control. That second kind of outer circle is the things I can influence. And that third circle is the things I can respond to. Everything that I'm working on is how do I grow that first circle larger? How do I grow it and then expand out into that things that I can influence? And then how do I minimize that outer circle as much as possible to things I'm just having to respond to? But if I find myself in a place where I'm like literally facing something that I'm having to respond to, mentally mapping myself back to it in this moment, what is the thing that I can control? What's the next thing that I can influence? And then that minimizes those things I'm having to respond to. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. What if you could hang out with experienced tech industry executives, ask them about career growth, equity compensation, investing, financial strategies, and more. Then take an insight or two to guide your own career and lifestyle. Each week on the show, Christopher Nelson shares an in-depth look at how to navigate tech careers and hyper-growth companies, select the right companies to work for, earn equity, and build a passive income portfolio. Christopher is an author, tech exec, and principal and co-founder of Wealthward Capital. His goal is to give you the information you need to grow your career, build wealth, and make an impact. Now, here's Christopher. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. I've been in the technology industry for 20 plus years, and after climbing my way to the C-suite, working for three companies that have been through IPO, and investing my way to financial independence, I'm here to share with you everything that I've learned and introduce you to people along the way that can give you strategies and tactics to help you in your journey. I am very excited about today's episode where we're going to talk to Quay Barnett. Quay has been a 20-year veteran of the United States Armed Forces in Special Operations. He was the director of a high-performance institute that kept Special Operations soldiers operating at a very high level of performance while under great duress. He's now the chief revenue officer of Striveworks, a artificial intelligence and machine learning ops company that is helping businesses solve a lot of problems around AL and MI ops. Today, we're going to talk about his career, how he went from the military to working in technology. That's going to be the first half of the show. But in the second half, Stay tuned for that because we are going to be breaking down strategies and tactics of how you who are working in high stress, high performance environments can prevent burnout, can make sure that you have the right mindset to move through and perform when it's needed most. Excited to share this with you. Let's get into it right now. All right. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. We're here with Quay Barnett. Quay is the Chief Revenue Officer of Striveworks, an AI and ML ops platform for many business use cases. But interestingly enough, before that, Quay spent 20 years in the military, 16 years in special operations for the Army, where he led operational teams during 12 overseas deployments, provided strategic communications at the White House to the National Security Council, and he was also the Director of Human and Cognitive Performance for a 1,500-person elite organization. I'm excited to have Quay here today to talk about this transition from military to tech. See a lot of people out there making this transition. It's so important for us to understand the stories and, and how Quay was able to do that successfully. And then also to dig into high performance organizations like special operations, like working in technology, and what are some of the things that he learns that map to both. So thanks so much for taking the time today, Quay. 
Christopher, thanks for having us. Really looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed uh, getting to listen to some of your other episodes and constantly learning from them. Oh, thanks so much. And I know that, you know, as you and I uh, over the past year have been getting to know each other, I've been thinking that this is a great opportunity to really share those experiences that you had before and how that maps over. But I would love to start off with, you know, your journey, you know, what took you from a, a West Point graduate into special operations? Yeah, and I think as is often the case, usually it's mentors, right? Like you start to see people that you want to emulate. Uh, so for me personally, there was a specific professor at West Point who was a special forces officer. And in the kind of context of the broader army, as you'd expect with kind of any organization that's a lower, you know, smaller type uh, construct, there just weren't a lot of special forces officers. So when you met one, he kind of embodied what that entire community met and would look like for you in your kind of mind's eye. And he was kind of that person that you'd want as a mentor and a leader, you know, so very uh, mentally challenging, very disciplined, very outgoing, very competent, and very physically kind of fit. And so as a young, you know, cadet who's thinking about how do I go lead and serve people in the military, he was kind of that thing that you would look at and be like, well, that seems like the right kind of person to want to be like. And, and then it kind of backed into like, well, what does he do? I should probably try to learn what that is and explain it and explore it a little bit more. So a lot of that was really just that first, you know, you get those good positive mentors in your life and you start to understand like what makes them tick, how did they get to where they were, as is you know, very similar in our tech careers. It is. And I think we get so excited, I think we in tech, and this is where I, I do want to spend some time like sort of connecting some dots that I think are very similar is I think in tech, we get so excited with the impact that we can make we sit at this front row seat to the future and we're literally, you know, helping create things that impact the way that we work, that we live, you know, forever. And so for you, when you thought about these smaller teams, but the high impact, because when I think about special forces, special operations, I think they are the tip of the spear. They're out, you know, arguably some of them are on uh, different assignments that can either change history, impact history. So was that impact that, you know, front row seat to history being made per se, was that something that, that influenced you or excited you about this opportunity? 100%. And it's interesting, you know, at the end of the career, I did a lot of reflection as I was transitioning into that next professional career. And I could actually map a lot of that exact kind of importance or kind of value that you assigned to that kind of to my own personal kind of why. So for me, kind of looking back and thinking, okay, what is it that I want to do in a technology career? It was very much about how do I take, you know, see the future or the you know, kind of the current state for what it is, look at what the future state could be, take, you know, kind of optimize capital and resources, deploy that in a way in which I can get some kind of out, outsized impact. So that literally manifested itself kind of early in my life around like I loved old cars restoring old cars. I, I always just thought it was cars. And then later in life, we'll probably talk about it. We started the flipping business. And then ultimately it was what I was doing in the military. I was having this outsized impact based on the ability to kind of predict what the future, see what the future could be, align those resources, that vision, that intent, bring those together, and then get that like multiple effect of you know, small teams having huge impact. I got to watch it kind of firsthand when I first came out into the military, just kind of timing of, you know, when my career was, you know, I was there kind of during the beginning of 
the global war on terrorism and the initial invasions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so I got to watch the, literally these kind of small teams come in and have that outsized impact on things that were, you know, literally front page, like you said, impact to the region, impact to the world. And you could see they could do it with a lot less. And that became very attractive to me. Yeah. When you're able to see and understand and you get a taste of that impact, it becomes, I think, you know, something very, very exciting and in, in, in actually draws you in, pulls you into it. One of the things that I wanted to just sort of take a step back and clarify for, for people that are listening that may not understand a little bit of how would you define quickly for them? Like what are special forces, um, special operations? What does that, what does that really entail? Yeah. So great question, Christopher. And so what we have our defense department, we've got different service branches, you know, so you're familiar with Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, Marines, now Space Force. And so special operations is a service-like component inside of our defense department. And then inside of that special operations community, every branch of service has their own variant of special operations, you know, whether that's Navy SEALs or Army Rangers or Army Green Berets or Air Force uh, special tactics soldiers. So all of, all of the branches kind of bring part of what that unique special operations combined community is in their specific service um, application of that. And then you see those come together, what we call the joint force. And so a lot of the joint special operations really takes those as combined individual skills, not like you know, how you combine a lot of the go-to-market functions of a tech company and then leverage them for that kind of outsized impact at a minimal cost from a resourcing standpoint, from a force projection standpoint. And so it's a, it's a great corollary, I think, between you know, what a lot of people are already probably familiar with and kind of the method in which we employ our, our special operations forces. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that before. Like you, You're right, the concept of a go-to-market team where you need an account manager, somebody who's relationship-focused, right, on the ground, you know, creating uh, alliances, creating partnerships. Then you bring in your sales engineer, technically focused, showing what are the capabilities we can deliver. Then there's going to be, you know, implementation partners, all these things, right? There is a direct corollary. So now I'm getting the clarity of where it, it makes sense for you as a go-to-market leader. You're really mapping some of the same skills that you learned uh, before. Yeah. And I think what's even cooler for me is, you know, you're, you're seeing impact still, right? And that's why I think, you know, all of us are really looking for, there's lots of different ways, levels in which you can have that impact. But if you're building something of value and you can bring that in a you know, cohesive way out into the marketplace or into the environment you're operating in, like you can have a real outsized impact. And I think, you know, that's the things when you think about legacy and you think about like, what am I doing kind of here on earth to make you know, things around me better, the people, my relationships, the organizations. There's been a great like marriage between those two. The implementations are often very different. Some of even the skills required are different, but there's this massive overlapping and almost foundational aspect between the two. And so going back to your story, I know that as the war on terror kicked off, and I, I think too, for, for myself, I was part of a disruptive technology here on the civilian side, cloud technology, when I transitioned from working from traditional ERPs like PeopleSoft to Salesforce.com in 2004. And I know that there was a huge operational disruption that happened really in theater, which, you know, I think of, I read Stanley McChrystal's team of teams where, wait, the way that the army was structured, the military was structured to execute, you had to truly start disrupting that. Was that something that 
you were a part of that you got to see and participate as you refactored literally the way you operated? Yeah. And what's interesting about that kind of corollary, it was a lot of that was certainly accelerated, if not like enabled by technology. Uh, so in the past, if you think about means of communication, both interpersonal and relay, like a commander's intent or sending specific, you know, guidance, the standard kind of forms of that communication was certainly accelerated by things like, you know, video teleconferences. So when Stanley McChrystal is thinking teams of teams, yes, he's thinking about the fact that he's got people out and all these kind of like embedded, we called them like liaisons or uh, liaison officers. They were in all these adjacent uh, companies, so to speak, or organizations, but really it was the technology that accelerated that it was the ability to chat among teams literally globally. It was the ability to hop on a VTC, you know, video, te- video teleconferencing back in the day. This was this was before COVID made it, you know, kind of business practice. The ability to take like common shared information and then propagate that out for the kind of like execution level uh, tasks that were needed and that coordination, that was what he was orchestrating from a concept. But really, technology was the main conduit that was enabling. I don't want to rabbit hole here, but I, I, I love that story. I think it's fascinating because when I read it, it seemed to me that some of the processes that he was adopting was almost like a daily stand-up meeting, what you actually see in agile development in software. I'm just trying to understand because I know that a lot of software, a lot of development happens, civilian goes to military and, and vice versa. I'm curious if any of that process you know, came from agile development or agile development came from that. I don't know if you know. Yeah, I'm not sure the the true lineage. I would say it's effective communication, right? So I think people quickly adopt common concepts that are effective for getting you know, value and impact. For that particular time and place, that was a really impactful way of communicating. That stand-up, it almost kind of forced it into a more truncated form of communication, right? Because we couldn't have now 150 people all giving 15-minute speeches, right? Like this needed to be like, distill it down, tell people what adjacent organizations need to know, get guidance from the control tower, so to speak, and then be able to go back and implement on a daily basis. Very similar to the, how do we build an agile responsive you know, software development process? I'm sure. So we're talking about you know a lot of the great things, a lot of the positive things that happen, but I think just like in technology and tech environments that have a very low margin for error and then can also be incredibly stressful at some point in your career, like there started to be some friction. And I think, you know, arguably you probably had bullets coming in the opposite direction can be, you know, very, very friction filled. So how did you, how did you start coping with this? And how did, you know, I I think for a lot of people, you know, in tech, when they start getting headwinds, they start questioning themselves. Obviously, you know, you had a larger directive that saw you, you know, move through a lot of that. And then learning to deal and operate in dynamic, chaotic environments. What were some of the things mentally that you had to really realize to move forward? And what were some things that you leveraged to to cope with that? You know, so, so product market fit may not be the perfect corollary to that one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great question. And I think there are some very transferable. I mean, these are the thing that I you know, have kind of learned, I think, over time even whether it's a technology or whether it's an organization delivering technology, it's still humans that are involved in human endeavors. And so a lot of the kind of like foundational values and overlap of these kind of principles are true and hold fast. The way in which, you know, it's being implemented might be different. The construct of the team, the way communication is handled, 
all of that has the variance, but these, you know, taking technology out into the market is a very human endeavor, right? And it's, it's not devoid of all the humans that are involved behind it to make it work, to make it effective, to make it fit well to the market. One of the things I think that really helped was, you know, when you think about like, how do you prepare for those chaotic moments that you really can't fully anticipate because you don't know exactly how that's going to go is you have your base plan that everyone understands, right? You have a very clear understanding. And the way we would manage that was having everyone kind of brief back, very similar to you know, your stand-up, so that there was this kind of constant two-way alignment from team members of, if we're going somewhere, this is what we're doing, here's what we're trying to accomplish. And that overarching intent always had to be very clear, because at some point, groups, teams, development efforts may get in isolation, and then maybe face a dynamic circumstance in which they need to be able to kind of respond inside of an intent guidance. And I think oftentimes that can be missing sometimes when we take a very often maybe engineer-led kind of more black and white approach to thinking about things as tech integrations as opposed to customer intent, customer value, customer impact. Um, so I see a lot of the corollary there. And then once that intent's established, you know, work through those contingencies ahead of time. And that's that helps people over time. The more you refine that contingency planning, that it gives them more and more autonomy to be able to operate and close that decision cycle. They can make that decision at their level. They can make that next decision faster. That helps speed up really that tight alignment of a, an organization that's trying to do something together. So you're in the military, you're growing your career, and I'm sure at that point, right, there was, throughout the war on terror, there started to be more integration of technology. At what point did you start seeing, you know, yourself thinking about exiting the military and, and thinking about a career in technology or, or was it, you know, more subtle than that? Yeah. So Christopher, I think it's, it was very much a related to this overarching theme we're talking about, which was impact. Again, just kind of looking out at the kind of time horizon and kind of the next series of like positions and what would be kind of coming in the future and kind of where we were from a geopolitical standpoint, I felt my greatest impact was actually stepping out of the military and providing more advanced solutions back into the military or back into the commercial space or back into the kind of uh, broader, more impactful markets. And sometimes in some careers, you can get kind of in that uh, silo, so to speak, where your sphere of influence is always, you know, expanding based on your personal networks and relationships. But even organizationally, you know, there can be confines to how much impact you can have and where. Whereas, you know, from this perspective, I can work with dozens of different organizations, you know, literally inside of a given day or week and have impact across lots of different uh, organizations. So for me, it was kind of, again, envisioning where can I have the most impact and then what do I need to do to position myself to, to be ready to make that change? There's many military you know, members that have been in there that have, have spent careers there, have done the 20 years, and then they start thinking about transitioning out. You know, Tell us a little bit about, you know, I think we just heard about the opportunity. What were, did you have any um, you know, concerns? Did you have any fears that you, know, you, you had to, to navigate through as you, uh, you know, started that process? Yeah, and I think uh, looking back kind of three years after being out, what I give for a lot of guys who are transitioning or people who are making that transition is really to kind of take a little bit of that pressure off yourself in the sense that make your first right decision that opens up as many future pathways as possible, but you're not going to be able to solve your next 20 years and your first year decision. Um, 
I think for some people who were making those major career shifts, especially if they've been highly performant in their past career, they almost feel like they have to to bake in kind of that same level of performance. Um, and it, that just may not be known when you start into a new career. You're going to step into what presents the most options, the most network capabilities that will expose you to the most learning so that you can make that next best decision. I know myself having done some work with with transitioning, you know, military to to tech, the biggest question that I always had is, you know, what I hear from the military members, I came from a family, like everybody is part of this family. We continue to help each other. Who do you trust or how do you build that on the outside? And my reply is always, oh my gosh, like my network of peers is that family. Like there's people, if for some reason I need to get employed right now or do have a question answered, I know a list of people that I can call. How did you navigate that? And how do you, you know, uh, advise other transitioning you know, military people to, to start building that, you know, networking career that's going to be outside of your current frame of, or sphere of influence. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, the great point you bring up, I think it's, it's really selling it in the sense that it is not just a work relationship, right? When you talk about what is your network and what is your kind of value around you, there's lots of different places. You've got your family, you've got friends that have nothing to do with work. And then you've got hopefully like a really broad array of types of work friendships. So one thing that I found very helpful was actually going to partners at venture capital firms because they just saw so much deal flow that they were being exposed to lots of different networks, lots of different industries, lots of different companies that I wouldn't necessarily individually be able to map to. So in my mind, it was, let me kind of partner with a couple of these you know, strategic gateways to new networks that I would really find valuable and really found interesting, but I probably won't necessarily be able to get you know, directly connected to them just on my own. So finding, you know, kind of places where you can kind of build those hubs that you can branch out of in a couple of different areas of your life, I think builds for a more fulfilled, you know, broader array of relationships. And that, to your point, becomes that that family or that culture of support that maybe you found in a narrow organization, you know, kind of in a past career. And were there some were there some techniques that you used to to build rapport or to choose the people that you said you know what I want to go deeper in some of these relationships so that I can you know uh, create deeper connection and we can you know support each other now as we're on this you know civilian side of our career yeah I mean I think it goes hand in hand with kind of a growth mindset and with humility um, so I don't see how you kind of possibly disconnect those two personally I think that growth mindset is something that is it's, you know, it's inside you that you're fostering and you come at these new relationships and you come at these new kind of markets or new networks with that kind of open questioning. Like, I am really interested in learning more about this. I am really excited about seeing what you guys are doing from the outside. I'd love to learn more about the processes, right? I'd love to learn more about how do you evaluate those markets, or I'd love to learn more about how do you see opportunity, you know, over the horizon. I think it's coming in with that like learner's mindset, that beginner's mindset is really a, a disarming way uh, oftentimes. And most people who are, have you know, strong convictions about the thing that they're doing, committing, you know, committing their life to, they'd love to tell you, right? Right. They'd love to spend time telling you about it. They'd love to educate. And then I think too, you know, one of the things that I always try and advise people on is if you are humble, you're, you're asking questions and they you know, in, in your mentor or whoever's giving you guidance, ask for, you know, some help, just try and be 
quicken the response, try and, you know, think ahead, you know, ask smart questions. I think that you'll find that you can start creating, you know, some really good sticky relationships because, you know, to your point, I think people that are on these journeys that are building something that are trying to make impact in the world, they're looking for other like-minded individuals because many times they're probably part of a smaller circle themselves. So I've found the same thing too, that they're always willing to invite you in if you're leaning in yourself. One of the like obvious self-hacks for that for me personally was, you know, every time I had those conversations, always ending it kind of with two you know, specific things. One, come in and be prepared and have an ask of that person because their time is really valuable, not leaving it just open-ended. We want to have a discussion, give them some framework and reference. So when you come to that conversation, they know you've got an intent, they can add value to it. And you both walk away kind of having had a great exchange. And then the second part of that is always asking for who else should I be speaking to? Like, can you give me the names of, you know, two more people in your circle that you think would really be beneficial for me to learn from, from them. So always having kind of that next step asking, always asking for that next connection, I think is pretty elementary, another novel there, but certainly a powerful tool for, you know, continuing to expand those networks. It is. And I actually love, you know, very simple hacks like that because, you really, it's not harder than that. I mean, I remember it's, it's interesting. I was trying to teach my kids, you know, Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people. He has, you know, a series of questions. So where are you from originally? They're very simple questions, but I literally use the same questions all the time. And you're right. Some of that programming, you just need to have that ready, available, get comfortable using it. And it can, it can open doors. And sometimes it helps to have a weird name like Quay. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or to have a name where people always take your syllables. I'm Christopher. Oh, hello, Chris. I'm like, hey, can I get those syllables back? And if, if you could just pass them right back, we'll be good. You can move forward. Well, you probably didn't realize this, but I'm a Christopher Quay. Uh, so Christopher is actually my first name. Oh, I had. <laughs> okay. Got more to catch up on that later, man. But Quay is definitely unforgettable. So stick with that. We're good. So. Let's try and I think, so at some point you made the decision and you started transitioning out, you know, what, so what did you, what did you discover on sort of your, um, you know, first venture outside of the military and then now, you know, um, the job at Striveworks? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to that stepping stone principle and it goes back, I think also to that, you know, learner's mindset. I came out into what I would have described as if you were looking at it on paper from a title position. Uh, responsibility, like this was the ideal job, kind of coming out of the military and going in into that first job and first market. And it was like a 10 month, you know, great MBA experience in the sense of that on the job kind of learning. And it very much distilled to me that I was looking for something different from a scaling standpoint. Um, so I don't view that as a negative experience. I view that as well, this was fantastic, but this wasn't the ultimate place where I was going to stay and work. This wasn't the ultimate team that I was going to be part of, but that's not a negative. That's a, while I was there, it opened up you know, numerous of other opportunities. I learned more about how to take things to market, how to build new product lines. Ironically, even uh, a couple of the customers that I worked with in that first job offered me COO roles coming you know, later down the line. So it it, you know, as you're building those relationships and as you're learning those markets, keeping that kind of open learning mindset, I think was really important. But that first step wasn't kind of 
uh, you know, the ultimate stuff that I was looking for. And so for me personally, I actually think I did a lot more reflection kind of 10 months out than I did as I was getting out. But I think it was good because it was more steeped in kind of experiential learning of what was on the commercial side of things. So I think it was a good timing to, to kind of stop and have that, you know, let's, let's put some real reflection kind of time into my schedule. I think it's so important to tell that story because I know with two or three guys that I followed their transition out of the military, that was their experience as well in the sense that they got into these roles and honestly, they had very high expectations of them. And then when, you know, 10 months, 12 months, 14 months later, it didn't turn out to be the right fit. They had to manage through some things, which I think I understood on the civilian side is sometimes you're going to get into a role and it's not the right fit. And that's okay. Like that's normal. And I know that especially one of the guys felt like, oh, am I failing because I didn't find my next 20 year career? And the answer is no, you didn't fail. It's normal. This is a step. And this is where I think, you know, how you articulated, you know, your experience there is so important for people to understand. Yeah. We're all learning and growing constantly. I think that's the kind of value add. When you think about, you know, where do you add value and impact back into your networks? As you're learning those experiences, obviously you're sharing those back out with people. This is a prime platform for that. Like the fact that you went through not only just personal experiential of kind of the roles and responsibilities you had and how you kind of instrumented that. But I think a key part of this too, you know, that I've really benefited from is also on the kind of financial side of that, like understanding the value drivers of you as a specific, you know, value commodity market or understanding the role of equity, understanding kind of how that plays and interplays with the business profit and loss kind of architecture. Like that is super valuable learning for those of us who are who have had different value drivers in different organizations. You've opened up the soapbox, Quay, so I'm going to step onto it, which is there are so many people coming out of the military that have skills, that have experience that are needed in technology. Huge opportunity. And I'm not, I'm talking about detailed experience in cybersecurity and cyber warfare. I'm talking leadership experience and dynamic environments that can help them come in operational experience at a scale and then coming down. And I know sometimes the fit of taking something from when you operate at a large scale, trying to then go into a very chaotic startup and get it operationally sound and scaling can be a challenge. However, if you can figure out how to do that, like there is so much value. And then for people to then start understanding, they have this, what I call career capital, and they can trade that for some nice tranches of equity going forward, people need to understand that transitioning out of the military, you have a lot of value. Yeah. And I think in some ways though, it's an inverted value proposition in many regards, because you come out in the sense with all this kind of like organizational leadership that would be more commensurate with, you know, senior levels inside of a, a company organization, but you may have no industry expertise. And so sometimes it's really hard also for a, a company to map to that as a, what role do I put you in? You seem to have all this, you know, experience at the kind of organizational level, but you don't have anything about our industry. I don't know if that's a good fit or it's not a good fit. One of the things that I found super useful, kind of going back to that, uh, leveraging the VC kind of partners, when they would introduce me to a company that I was looking at or assessing kind of where they were, what they needed, when I would ask a CEO, what's your strategy for the company? They obviously knew it. They could articulate it. That's a good indicator of whether there is one or not, right? 
And then the first thing I would ask is like, what's your biggest blocker to getting there? And so instead of me trying to like map, you know, special operations experience to biopharmaceutical industry, it was what's the human problem? What's the organizational problem? What's the market blocker that you've got? What's your, you know, utilization issue that you're having? And then speak specifically to how I've leveraged other organizational situations and experiences to address similar problems. They don't really need to know or care whether or not that was in another country or whether that was, you know, a different dynamic entirely. They want to know, can I solve a problem that they have time now in their organization? And so I think military sometimes tries to map a job resume. And I think that can be a limiting factor when you're trying to find the corollary on the outside. That right there, I think, was a great little hack is instead of trying to do the mapping, because when you get internal to an organization and, you know, I've, I've been at, you know, Accenture, larger consulting organizations, you do that. Okay, what what are your capabilities? What have you done? Let's map you into a role, a theater. We're going to drop you in. I consider, you know, Accenture and some of these companies like the special forces of business, they have very similar mindset. And you're right. When you go to a smaller technology company, you're going to need to look at problems to solve and then map your own skill set instead of putting that onus on them. I think that's a great framework, great way to think about that. Yeah. One of the other things that I think was helpful for me was really just I had defined goals. I had a defined kind of value proposition. And the way I got there wasn't thinking about my experiences, it was kind of asking the seven whys, right? Like if you keep asking yourself, well, well, why is that important? Why is that important? And if you ask, and you know, a lot of people who are transitioning, if you're flying on a helicopter and fast roping down and, you know, doing an assault on a target is the thing that made them happy. It's like, well, that's going to be really difficult to map to a business opportunity on the outside. But if you're telling me that having to have time constraints, having operational environments where it's highly dynamic, you're ultimately dependent on the people around you and your team. And you've got to deliver some kind of like outsized value in a, in a compressed timeline. There's lots of places you can find to do that. So don't stop at kind of the experience, like go down a couple more whys as to what was that underlying value, that foundational value that made that experience super helpful or made it super energy producing for me. You wound up at StriveWorks and this seems to be where, you, where you've really hit your stride. And it seems like it's a good fit. I mean, fast growing company, dynamic environment. What's there not to love, right? Yeah. What's there not to love? No, I've, I had a chance and thank you, you know, some of the founders and the leadership team. And I think I'm excited about the company. I'm excited about what it's doing in, in the commercial and then also in the military marketplace. I think it's a dynamic team. And now you are in this go-to-market position. You're helping, you know, lead these teams through these very, I mean, dynamic times right now. I mean, I think geopolitically, we're in a very interesting environment that you're now selling into. And then I also think from a commercial time, right, you know, high interest rates, um, high inflation, you know, it seems like you were, you were made to be a go-to-market leader in these times. And it's been great. I think part of you know, that natural, I went to kind of what was that value proposition. It's why it mapped so well. And I'm so excited about the time I've had at Strideworks. Strideworks, you know, fundamentally in the machine learning ops and AI kind of market is really focused on what we call like a day three problem, which is day one, everybody's building a model somewhere. Everyone's trying to get, you know, artificial intelligence produced. They continue, they're excited. They got it into their production environment, which is massive hurdles for lots of organizations. And then day three, it failed, uh, right? And the, the model 
no longer performs or the world has changed or the questions I want to ask are different. And so I do think there's this great mapping to, well, how do you keep things performant in a dynamic environment where your operational requirements are constantly needing to adapt to a competitive business environment, whether that's national security or whether that's purely a commercial industry that's trying to keep a competitive edge from their analytics, it maps very cleanly to you know those kind of similar value drivers. I think on a personal level, it's a little bit ironic because in my first like leader book that I had, you know, as a as a brand new lieutenant, I had a couple of quotes on the outside. One was you know John Stuart Mills, and the other was the man in the arena from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And so when I think about like what did I want to do as a leader in the military, like I wanted to be the man in the arena. I wanted to go find those organizations that were striving to do great things, that were daring, and if they failed, they failed. You know, achieving going to achieve greatness, not you know, kind of the cold and timid souls that know neither the, uh, you know, the victories or the defeats. So for me, when I found a company in the tech world, that literally the name is founded from that same quote, you know, we've got the man in the arena up on the wall. Like it was a very natural kind of values alignment for me. Yeah. And, and I'm excited about yourselves, the future there. I'm also excited about the second half of this episode where I want to take a little pause right here, but everything that you talked about, you're in these dynamic environments, you know, need to perform things under stress. You've also helped people do that as well in these dynamic environments in the battlefield. And I want to really be able to provide everyone listening that experience as well. So hold on, everybody. We're going to be right back with Quay. Okay, we are back for the second half. We're here with Quay Barnett. We heard his story of West Point military, now tech chief revenue officer. Where I really want to double click in the second half is your time that you spent as the director of human and cognitive performance for special forces, special operations. I want to really understand how some of your learnings there, we can map and we can help technology professionals today in dealing with dynamic environments, in dealing with stress, in understanding how they can perform their best in those environments. So the first question I want to start with is, where do you see some of the similarities in you know, what you were training and how you were leading teams in you know, special forces to now in technology? Yeah, I think uh, we've talked about this a little bit. You know, Everything is still a human endeavor. So a lot of those like things that overlap are those kind of foundational, like how do humans align? How do humans come together to form this kind of outsized impact? And how do they perform at a consistent rate? That's common, I think, across lots of different industries. It's certainly, I think, accentuated in technology because of that pace. And so the pace starts to have that other mirrored kind of component to the called an operational tempo for like a special operations person. So how do you keep on that treadmill that's going and someone's turned it up to nine and you've hopped on and you've got to be able to keep running at nine. Uh, so there's a couple things I think that help. One foundational and maybe a couple of just little hacks. So one foundational is I like to think and I've tried to describe kind of like almost like concentric circles when I think about, you know, kind of where I have the relation to things going on around me. That first kind of inner circle is the things that I can control. That second kind of outer circle is the things I can influence. And that third circle is the things I can respond to or have to respond to. And what I'm trying to do, like everything that I'm working on is how do I grow that first circle larger? How do I grow it 
and then expand out into that things that I can influence? And then how do I minimize that outer circle as much as possible, the things I'm just having to respond to? Those are the unforecasted things. Those are the things that are the externalities of the market. But if I find myself in, in a place where I'm like literally facing something that I'm having to respond to, mentally mapping myself back to it in this moment, what is the thing that I can control? What's the next thing that I can influence? And then that minimizes those things I'm having to respond to. So that's just a mental kind of approach that I've used and I've found helpful, you know, when talking with other kind of high performing team members, because we quickly find ourselves that treadmill gets us on the back end and we're just kind of responding to the, to those outings off times. What can I control? My actions, my attitudes, you know, my networks, my responses, my interactions with my, my teammates. Those are the things that I can quickly get back into grasp without feeling like I'm, you know, kind of outside the bounds of just having to respond to all these things that are there. When you train that team members that were in the field and deployed, were there physiological things that you did along with that? Was there you know, breathing that went with that? Was there physically removing yourself from a, a situation, clearing your head? I mean, what what came with that from a physiological sense? Yeah, and each situation is a little bit different. Sometimes you can physically remove yourself. Sometimes you've got to be able to continue to function in that environment. One of the things that kind of always went with me, though, is the idea around like, adrenaline versus energy, right? So, you know, when we think physiologically about dumping these adrenaline releases, over time, if you're not resetting those, you literally, you know, physiologically, your body will get at that like 80% hover point on all things. You'd literally be kind of sitting on your couch and your, you know, your hypothalamus hasn't reset. Like you literally haven't neurologically, you know, taken that cold shower, so to speak, that kind of resets your, your nervous system. And so you could literally be at a hover even when you're in a you know externally stressing environment. And so we've had to have a lot of kind of work with that. That's you know, mental discipline around like you know understanding and being able to kind of reset yourself, being able to focus on like I'm exuding energy right now, but I'm not dumping adrenaline. Being able to kind of think about it in terms of if I'm getting this dopamine hit from this kind of like response that I'm I'm having like. That's great, but I also need to be in a more kind of moderated state where I don't want to be on this emotional roller coaster, right? I don't want these these really, really highs to like drain me when I need to like do the next thing that's coming. So kind of having literally that kind of middle mindset of you know, don't ride the roller coaster up or down. I'm gonna stay in a level energy state. I am in the moment, I am present, and I am mentally focused on the things that I've got to do, but I'm not, you know, trying to like really overstimulate my system in either direction. I think more tangibly, like we get a lot of stimulation now from things like devices, right? So, you know, the ability to a little bit kind of remove from that, not have to consume things in 12 second instrument uh, increments, you know, doing deeper reflective thought. All of these are kind of those little hacks you can use to, to help reset that, you know, kind of central nervous system. So you're not constantly in that, that hover state just because your work environment puts you into that kind of high adrenaline state. That's a very interesting point. I, re- I remember, I, and fortunately, the Trevor, his name's escaping me right now, but he was the performance coach that worked with Russell Wilson for many years. But his philosophy was you want to remain in neutral. You want to think of yourself as a car, as a race car in that 
because really what I think you were saying is, and now it, it makes sense to me what he was saying all along is, you don't want to be in the highs, which may be the drive, like you're going really fast, you're winning. You don't want to be in the lows, which is the reverse, you're going back, but you want to remain in neutral because when, every time you go back to neutral, then you can execute and respond to things, but you're not in, in a sort of momentous reactive mode in either direction. Yeah. And it, it's funny you bring that, uh, that analogy up. One of our original strength coaches actually went on to be the Oakland Raiders performance coach. And they had it dialed in with Derek Carr and probably give away some massive NFL trade secret. Yeah. They had it dialed in where they knew what his number was, right? Like literally they had it on a, you know, a decibel scale. You know, like, so he's a, I'll, I'll potentially skew it. He's a 55.2 is when he's performing optimally. Um, so you're kind of literally instrumenting your day and your life and your food and your, you know, your kind of experiences to get you to that place where you're at that kind of like optimal performance where your decision making is not like you say overstimulated. You're not under engaged, but you're in that kind of neutral space where you're cognizant of what's going on around you and you can make good, timely, thoughtful decisions without it being impulses or kind of lagging behind the time you need to respond. This is one of these conversations as well. Like obviously career and money is is the big focus that I want to bring to the table. But the other one that's that's coming up as I'm having more podcasts, as I'm talking to people is, you know, the career, money, and health, right? Is how that's all related. And well, in the in this physiological component, because, you know, as I working in the early 2000s for a large consulting company for Accenture, there wasn't conversations about health. There was conversations about the deadlines, about getting things done. And there was a big up or out mentality in the organization. So you were always pushing, pushing, pushing. Led to a lot of burnout where I know in your organization, you know, talking to yourself and other people that I know, and part of that, managing your physiology, your body is really important. And I think that's something that's coming to light now in, in tech, as you hear people talking about, oh, I'm taking, you know, cold dips in the morning so I can go to the office and be reset and focused and centered. Or I had a, uh, interview with a friend of mine, Gautam, who was a Deloitte strategy consultant, who's now very focused on mindfulness and breathing to do some of the resetting that you're talking about. But I think that this is an important conversation to have is, in trying to bring forward some of the stuff that you are doing as well, where it incorporates the physiological is, you know, to help you get to that mental performance. You've got to change your entire company name now to Tech Careers Money and Health. <laughs> exactly. Tech Career Money and Health Talk. Yeah. It's it's setting itself up really well for an acronym. I like that. The longer the name, the closer you get to an acronym. Uh, exactly. The, the military guys would eat it up. They love I'm very right now. We've got an acronym on the horizon. I want to continue this conversation because in tech, where you may not have people in, in great health, there may be these, you know, you may lose a big client. You may lose a big opportunity that you were going for. And so you have this, you know, mental downward pressure, you know, or the sports analogy is you're playing behind. Somebody has more points on the board and you are fatigued and you need to still continue to perform, what were some of the techniques or strategies that you were using in the special forces to get past some of those things? I think some of it is, uh, there's probably two parts to it. One, I do think that there is something to be said for grit, right? You know, the ability to endure when things are difficult is a differentiator uh, oftentimes. So I don't want to undersell the value of, of that persistence with passion. If you think about like from our standpoint, 
company, we have three core values. And one of those is that is persistence with passion. And that's kind of where I think about grit in a positive sense, right? Like I'm passionate about the thing we're doing. I see the impact we're having, but I've got the underpinning persistence. To your point, that means I've got my health, my family, my mindset in the right place that I can be persistent. So I think about it as a, I am gearing up to be able to kind of endure if necessary, but do it in a way that's not detrimental, doing it in a way that like I can sustain higher performance. And I think sometimes, you know, that's the the rub, right? Some people see it as like, I've just got to endure the pain and sprint through it. And I don't think in the long run that ends well. This is something that I'm glad that it's spoken about more is, you know, the multi-dimensionals, you have to make sure that your health is right, that your family is right. And maybe that's something that is done better and taught, you know, foundationally in different points of the of the military or the special forces. But I think in tech, you know, people are are learning to to find some of that balance a little bit more now. I'd be curious your thoughts on it too. You know, are you seeing those inflection and reflection moments as you mature through your career as well? Things that you wouldn't have thought that to be important, you know, kind of as you were taking kind of the early steps in your tech career and everything was, you know, maybe driven by that next deadline or that next, you know, career ladder you were trying to get to? So I was first in this organization, Accenture, which I compare that a little bit. I call it the special forces of business because you're always going to be dropped into some type of theater where something bad is happening or you're going to have to implement some big change and they want it to, again, to be a small, nimble team. And in that environment, I think probably similar to yours, we were surrounded with mentors. There was a formal organization of where you created connectivity with people that were higher in the career ladder, where it was their job to create relationship and to show you the ropes, show you here's how you do it from a career perspective. And then you also had the opportunity to see how they were doing it from a family perspective. And this is where I realized that I had a choice. I could align with guys that were doing career at all costs, or I could align with guys that were doing career and family much more balanced or or they had much more of a rhythm. And that was something that I learned personally is, you know, you want to align yourself with the people that you really want to be like in all aspects, not just in one dimension. As I transitioned out of that into the startup world, that was really where I took that mindset to seek out peers, to seek out mentors that I wanted to be like. And it was in that that I started finding, and I think we were all on this journey together of we pursued career, then we realized, okay, maybe our families are a little stretched. We'd go and you figure out family, then we'd figure out you know, health. That was, I mean, and I think that was a big thing. I think I could say for many people in tech, it wasn't until, you know, the last five or seven years that really sitting as the new smoking came out, you know, so now this is a sit stand desk and, you know, how do you move and make sure you're taking care of your body because all the sitting will destroy you over time. And then, you know, the whole concept of, you know, morning routines and routines to really get you in a mindset to be your reflection your reset before you start your day, I know that that's something that has, you know, permeated a lot of leadership in tech. And I think throughout the United States that's helped. And I think now it's starting to trickle down. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of great, you know, kind of what can we take away, you know, as listening to this, those hacks, you know, big believer in the 5am club, right? Like I 
I've actually kind of modulate some of my growth and learning. Um, I use Headway for 20 minute book compression, right? So if I can take a, you know, you mentioned earlier how the seven habits of highly effective individuals or something like that, maybe in something you've read before, like if I can compress that down into my 20 minute focus period, and I can get through that with a summation of like, okay, this is a the key takeaways. I'm not hearing the entire content, but I got some new kind of like thought stimulation going about how would I apply that today in my and then when I'm on like a longer business trip or something and I'm traveling to and from an airport, that may be more the kind of I've got an audible going where I I'm actually going a little bit layer deeper, a little bit more context, a little bit, you know, longer thought period around a topic of interest. And then, you know, where do you kind of layer that in with the family and with your your personal and physical health? You know, so having those kind of like building those systems in, in your life to allow for that, I think is really important. It is. And I'm curious if from the military perspective, because health is so important and because it is, I have to think that the selection process going through special forces is something that probably reinforced taking care of yourself physically and then also creates a level like it weeds out people who don't have grit and passion arguably yeah and i think you know it's as we apply this into like you know the let's say the software setting or in a tech space how do you equate that or how do you actually replicate the parts of that that are healthy and useful for the growing inside of that business and i think the stress inoculation is a is a good way to do that so what i mean by that is if you've got to give the quarterly business review and that's like the most terrifying moment of your life like, don't let that be the singular time you're giving that type of event. Just like if I'm going to go do a physical event, if I wait three months before I go do it, it's going to be very painful. There's going to be lots of scar tissue and probably some some injury involved and certainly just some humiliation. What can I do today? What can I do this week? What can I do this month? That's that kind of like stress inoculation to that event that gets me conditioned mentally, performance-wise that says, yeah. This is just the next natural progression. We're doing the quarterly business review. I've been doing these monthly updates with my team. I've been doing these daily standups with my partner to kind of get me into the place where this is not like this, again, not on this massive roller coaster of emotions and stress that comes with that. It's I'm doing those daily inoculations that help me be prepared to perform when needed, when called upon, or when planned. I think stress inoculation is is a powerful tool that, to your point, can be like needs to be considered and and understand where to leverage that. Whatever point you are in your career, is it you know trying to meet some type of a coding deadline, or is it trying to, to your point, deliver a a customer or internal facing presentation that has a lot of visibility? These are the things because I was hearing the other day somebody talking about the fact that. I don't know if it was stress inoculation specifically, but it was just talking about the fact that the more you work on the skills of your craft and you you actually then, you know, display those in a in a public forum and you get comfortable with that, that's going to build confidence. And then once you build confidence, then you can keep pushing sort of the boundaries of that that are going to allow you to then understand how you can f- perform higher and higher. Uh, as your career progresses. Yeah, this is one of those interesting kind of probably maybe unthought of points about that military transition because you think of those individuals coming out of maybe a special operations background as being highly confident because of, in theory, they've honed a kind of subject matter expertise that is, you know, by definition elite or some way specialized. But when they come out into this new environment, 
that don't have that same subject matter expertise. And ironically enough, confidence is one of the areas that people struggle with because let's say you're coming into the real estate market, right? And that person that may be 26 that's been in that industry for three years, they've got the quant sheet down. They understand the highest and best use for that property. And it doesn't matter how much leadership you've experienced you've had. You can feel very unconfident in your ability to understand a very specific specialized industry or market or capability. Uh, so it, it does kind of put people kind of on their back footing a little bit sometimes where they've been so confident in their industry. Now they're moving into maybe an adjacent one that that confidence is not transferred. Not that they're not skilled, not that they don't understand leadership or people or organizations, but there's a very specific industry confidence that comes with experience as well. That can happen with people that are transitioning from even larger established software companies that are coming to smaller software companies where they were in a routine, in a rhythm. And that's where I, I think understanding how to know the skills that you need and being able to then you know flex and understand how to learn those skills, get comfortable with those skills. Uh, that's something that I learned. It was interesting spending time at Accenture where you were you could be in multiple industries with an expertise, so you had to gear up on different industries very quickly. I think that skill in and of itself of how to how do you get smart quickly on a subject and start getting uh, repetitions, reps early is is really really important. You know, in, in any type of transition. Yeah, and so you bring up a good point. Like those those kind of matrix organizations or those consultative organizations sometimes can be really great transition platforms for someone who is trying to learn how to quickly now get value propositions across lots of different markets, but transfer the business knowledge that they have or the organizational leadership they have or the communication skills. Um, and I've seen that work well where people transition out into a Accenture or to a Deloitte or a consulting firm. And it's a great kind of launch pad out to the next kind of long-term career they have, you know, coming from military into, into the tech space. What were some of the techniques that you used in the military to manage burnout? So I always think about it as like mental alternatives. I think burnout oftentimes, is, there is a physical component. There's certainly a you know, environmental component. But I think a lot of it is mental. And I think people get mentally fatigued when there's a lot of repetition, even if it's a very dynamic environment, but it's the same environment over and over again. So I just found mental alternatives. Um, people have different things. You know, Some people like to do video games. Some people like to do you know, books, whatever that mental alternative was, for me, it was running a business. So even while I was deployed, we were running our own uh, real estate flipping business. And that gave me a complete mental alternative where even though my mind was being engaged, was being engaged on something completely different. And in many ways, it was energy producing. You know, you come off of a 12 or 18 hour day, and I was going to put three or four hours into another, you know, business and kind of do the coordination for that remotely. That was very energy producing, but at the same time, it took me out of that kind of rut of, I'm doing the same thing 12 hours over and over again. It's like, oh, I have this, this other thing that I'm, that's exciting that's kind of at the end of this work day that I'm leveraging or I'm using uh, you know, my mind for to try to solve these different types of problems. And for me, that kind of mental alternatives has always been you know, really helpful. Some of us, that's you know, our family or it's a hobby or a passion or whatever, having something that you dedicate that to. I'm seeing there's a pattern because I found the same thing too. So I started my private equity business when I was still working full time and it was the same thing. I wanted 
the stimulation. I wanted to build something that was different. I also found that building something that I knew that I could move into or would partially support me transitioning out of a company was the way I like to describe it is that gave me a, a different purpose and it made my work purposeful. So I wasn't so burnt out on my day to day because to your point, I knew that I had something to look forward to. I had something else that was growing. It brought a lot of energy and I'm seeing in technology, a lot of people are doing that, whether that's consulting and helping other people, whether that's developing an expertise and sharing that with other companies, or whether it is building different uh, real estate businesses on the side, they're finding that as a great alternative to give them that mental release. I think one of your recent episodes with uh, Maurice was perfect for this. You know, He was using Accenture as you know, what he was using to build the thing that was his purpose that he felt really his long-term uh, focus. I, I think that's a, a phenomenal way of characterizing that. And I think it's really valuable. Doesn't mean that you're discounting the you know responsibility you have to your current employment. I found that to be more you know stimulating and helped me think about problems differently and helped me solve problems from a little bit different perspective than kind of the same way you'd always look at it. And in, in the interesting thing is employers are becoming more comfortable with it. There's an episode that will release soon with a gentleman by the name of Adam Broda, who is a senior product manager in big tech. And he has a, a thriving consulting business, helping people transition from non-tech to tech jobs, because that was his story. And he, you know, just feels, you know, a purpose to help people go through that. And his employer is supportive because they also realize that, you know, what he's doing also creates a pipeline for them of potential employees. And I think more and more where before there was a concern of, oh, you have this side gig or side hustle, for lack of a better term, that could be distracting where, no, it's actually bringing, you know, more ideas. It's actually bringing, uh, you know, preventing my burnout and those types of benefits are are letting companies see that as a uh, as a plus, not a minus. And I think it goes back to you know you've got to have some judgment and discernment there, but that willingness to explore something a little bit different. I remember you know early on in in my kind of last operational role roles, we were really not doing anything with drones or drone technology. It just wasn't mature yet. It was just kind of happening in the drone racing league, and there was some you know, small, like little pockets. And I had an individual who was a junior guy on a team who just had a passion for it. And we enabled him and equipped him and gave him like literally kind of a sidecar project, go figure out drones and then come back and tell us if there's any application. And I can fast forward about seven years later, literally from, you know, that operational context to then, like we were completely different in the way in which we operated on a target. We had drones, we had, you know, ground systems, we had lots of these capabilities that were fully integrated into not only like our operations, but our tactics, our procedures, how we thought about problem solving in those environments. And it literally came out of those individuals kind of having sidecar interest and, in, hey, there's this thing out here that I think may be applicable. Let me just kind of have some freedom to explore it. Huge benefit back to the organization. And I think that those are the types of stories that you're going to find are coming to light more and more and companies are going to start understanding that number one, people want these 
side hustles to be able to get that mental relief to find a, a different purpose and that it, it's going to bring benefit back to the company as well. No, for sure. Grow it with pie, right? Get everybody that big piece of Yeah. So I did want to ask, how do you see the both the military and tech teamwork and collaboration being being critical to execution? And what are some of the key things you learned in, in the teams that you're bringing to to your teams? Yeah, I think the uh, the human endeavor, it's got that underpinning. Like these, even if it's a technology output, it's still a human endeavor. Teams are still building things for purposes to help other people or to add some kind of, you know, to benefit or efficiency or optimization. Like, and so you do that with other people. There's there's rarely this kind of isolated idea hatches in someone's head. It's built on their own and they, you know, release it into the wild and manage it all of a sudden. Like, it's just not how you know, really great products are developed. They're developed in tight collaboration with people and they're teamed the whole way. I just don't think you can approach it really in any other kind of framework. So some of the things that I think are most applicable and maybe lost a little bit on the, you know, the technology side is really that kind of intent. You know, so what is it that we're actually going after? We're doing a series of potential tasks or we have a series of deliverables, but not losing sight of why we're doing it. Who is it for? What's that problem that it's solving? What's the pain point in the market that we're addressing that, you know, our outsized, you know, impact is going to be felt when we solve that. A lot of times that can also help when you get down into very technical decision-making, you know, we're going to take this, uh, you know, tech stack approach versus that, that intent is really important when you're thinking about kind of long game versus maybe even some of the, the here and now decisions that will lead you maybe a different direction, even in technical decision-making. So I, I think keeping that at the forefront as your teams are aligned on why they're doing what they're doing is really difficult to do in a dynamic environment. And it's really critical when you're trying to communicate across you know, teams and you're trying to align resources for a some size outsized impact. That is critical. And I think that, you know, and I can say for myself, like that thinking evolved for me over time. It was really what was our definition of getting something complete? Like what's the complete definition, but intent, why are we doing this? Who is it for? What is the outcome that we're seeking? What I witnessed is that the more your team understands that, the more they can work autonomously, the more they can work without you. It's empowering. Yeah, it's empowering and it, it enables people to to do things better. But that is a a subtlety and a methodology that I think commercial side really needs to get better at 100%. And then you've got to have the skill to map that to specific, you know, it can't just stay high level either. And that's that kind of nuance, like how do you translate that down into the actions and deliverables that occur in route to that intent? You know, it can't just be envisioning the mountain miles and miles away either. So it takes communication skills. It takes feedback. You know, when it, you know let's say it's an engineer that's providing that feedback on like when you say that, I don't know what I'm supposed to go do tomorrow, right? Like there could be that misalignment of, okay, that sounds great, but what do I need to do? Uh, so having open channels for feedback to say, okay, that intent was not clearly conveyed in a deliverable manner that I can understand and take and then action your intent and feel empowered. That's a, that's a feedback channel that needs to be there. It does. And that's why I've seen this evolution of engineering managers who were always very technically proficient to now the great ones are technically proficient, but they have an element of storytelling. They have an element of being able to to tie these uh, business reasons and 
in technical terms for uh, these engineers so they can bring that to life. And the ones that can do that really well create very, very high-performing teams. Add a lot of value to the marketplace for sure and get rewarded well for it. And Tam, back to your kind of point on like, that's part of, I think, one of those value propositions when you think about you know, a company looking at you as an equity asset, you know, your ability to do that and bring that kind of outsized impact is not a linear kind of W2 relationship, right? Like they realize they get scaled value of having somebody who lead teams like that as well. They do. And being able to, it's interesting that when you interview with some somebody, they may, they may be focused on one thing, but the more you can tell your own story and talk about the value articulate what that brings in. You say the word, the terms outside, outsized outcomes for the size of the team. And this, you know, in, in my speak, I talk about the results and quantifying that. That becomes incredibly powerful of being able to articulate what is your value in the marketplace, especially when you can, you know, mark that to where you see the market, where you see peers performing, that can get more equity, more dollars on the table. Right, for sure. We could talk all day on this high performance stuff. I mean, I really enjoy the conversation and, and I don't know if at some point we'll have live meetup with you and some other tech people like just jamming on this because I, I think people will really get a ton of value. But I want to take a moment before we get to the fire round and just ask, where are you with real estate today and what got you into real estate? What keeps you in real estate? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to that idea. Like we said kind of early on, I just, I like being able to look at what the future kind of value of something could be figure out how can I align resources in a way that's efficient so that I can get some kind of value, you know, profit on the back end of it. That was old cars, you know, restoring them, that's houses and flipping. For us, it was something that was accessible, right? Given my kind of schedule, if I could build a team of contractors who could do the work, you know, I could have the ability to go find the deals and I could have the ability to structure them and I could have the ability to manage it and then problem solve through it and then you kind of see where that market could be. That was what was really attractive. And the other part of it, honestly, for us was it was bringing my wife uh, kind of into that because we had, you know, my work was fairly compartmented in the sense that we weren't talking a lot of the kind of operational specifics at home. So this gave us something where we could team together and build something and we could bring the kids into it. They had, you know, junior Parker status and they had to work on the projects before they could get paid. And they had the delayed gratification of, just because you finish a project doesn't mean somebody buys it that day. You got to wait, uh, you know, to see those returns down the line. And it may not be maybe weeks and maybe months down the line before you see the value return. Now, is that something that you're still doing? So we have put it on pause right now, just with some market conditions here from a flipping standpoint. I feel like the market will be better suited for, you know, we, we weren't doing holds and long-term asset maintenance. So we, we were doing purely the kind of turn. So I think the market kind of will probably ride itself into another direction that that may be something we pick up again, still doing the old cars. You know, that's, that's something that I still find, uh, you know, a lot of fulfillment in. So we're, we're flipping those right now to the house. Is there a make and model that is your, your favorite or anything goes? No, I mean, I, I think I grew up a, you know, Chevy guy when I was 16, my, my first car I worked four jobs for was a 1957 Chevy Bel Air. Of course, because I was 16, I could only afford the four door model. So I literally had like a, you know, 26 foot of steel beast that I had to drive everywhere, but I was as happy as could be. So I like a lot of the kind of fifties and sixties muscle cars. Well, we'll have to talk. I'm, I'm sitting on, I got, I got from my, my pops, a 64 Chevy Impala super sport convertible. Right now we're on a 68, uh, Dodge charger. So the old bullet film, uh, 
Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a huge fan of uh, a bullet, man. That's a, I mean, the chase scene through San Francisco and stuff. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. Well, I don't want to keep you here all day, so let's get to the uh, the fire round. We're going to hit you with five questions right now. You may have answered some of these already. How do you keep learning? I do it uh, both through kind of that morning, like quick learning, like try to get something new kind of that I haven't thought about. That's that kind of 20 minute block of time every morning, kind of bring that five and five thirty window. And then I try to do it deliberately and I have a book that I'm interested in. So when I get kind of every couple of weeks, the chance to consume a book. And then the other thing I have is an annual goal, which is I want to learn a new topic or a new field or new something kind of each year. And so for me, moving into the data science and machine learning field has been a massive uh, learning opportunity. I'm surrounded by amazing professionals. So I kind of do it in those kind of chunks of learning. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's very formalized discipline. I love it. What do you do to recharge? So for me, the family is is the big thing. The other kind of middle, uh, you know, kind of alternate middle is that kind of old cars or side hustle kind of thing. But we've got, you know, three wonderful kids, a wonderful wife. And so we've got everything that comes with that, which means our schedules are mapped out with every travel sport every weekend. Uh, so spending time and, you know, literally just devoting that presence with them uh, is really recharging. Yeah, it's really good. What's the advice that you give to your younger self working in tech? I think it's the uh, the willingness to learn um, because I think especially as we're seeing now, we saw it at the kind of tail end where we're incorporating more and more technology in the way we operate. That half-life is just so quick as technology continues to develop. So whenever you think you've solved something or you have your system in place, someone coming up probably has something that's newer, that's faster, maybe even better. Like just being willing to kind of adapt and adopt to that um, when necessary and really continue that kind of learner's mindset. Great. What's the best investment of time that you ever made? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, that's kind of the God family and then, uh, you know, to the, to the country, right? Like I felt very, very tightly aligned when I was able to kind of orient my time that way and focus my efforts and make sure those were all kind of in that right alignment. And me wasn't in any part of that, right? There was, there was a natural kind of growth and development when we keep those kind of things aligned that purposefully. And then what, what was then the best return on time that you ever got? I think it was learning a business. Uh, again, I've talked about the kind of flipping because it made you kind of walk through every aspect of it, right? Things you didn't know you would need to learn, whether that's legal, whether that's understanding, you know, a process that by which to get homes, understanding the due diligence to go through looking at properties, looking at different, you know, capital rates across different types of investment portfolio. I mean, like, it was literally just you, you couldn't replicate that until you just got in and had a business that you had to had to keep solvent, had to keep growing. And it just was that wonderful kind of like crucible to like focus and distill learning for me. I agree a hundred percent that getting into real estate, you learn the skill that anybody can do. The math's not hard. Uh there are some, you know, tricky parts, but arguably what we do in tech is really much more complex. But it's a skill that I'm excited to be able to pass on to my family for multiple generations. And it's something that, you know, adds tremendous value to your family and to the bottom line. Not for sure. Like I said, being able to bring them into that was a lot of fun too. From kind of stroller days on, you know, they were they were there at the houses. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Quay. I appreciate your time. Thanks.
I hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Quay. I got a lot out of it. My ask for you is please subscribe to our podcast. We're on Apple. We're also on YouTube. We have a video version of the podcast. Subscribe there if you'd like, and please leave us a review. We need to know what value you're getting out of the podcast. And number three, send us an email. Let us know what you want to talk about, what questions you may have. Ask ASK at techcareersandmoneytalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much. See you next time.